Yeah, this is it, this is Kino Kingdom. I'm just just talking um, in the warm up to this, the, the 32nd Kino Kingdom. We've had a bit of a break, and it, yeah, I forgot how everything works. I couldn't even use a keyboard when I when I turned on the. <laughs> I was like, I was like, my fingers wouldn't work, and I thought, what is happening? So uh, you you went yeah, you just went off the map, Chris McCandless style. I did, I did. I got lost in my own hallway. But like I had more foresight than Chris McCandless because I actually had a full tube of Smarties, so <laughs> I was I was okay for a month. Um, I've still got half. Of, I've still got half of them left. <laughs> yeah, you didn't like the blue ones. Yeah, if you had to like so so thirsty that I had to like pull my own hair out and just suck the moisture off it. Um, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I don't know if, I don't know if I've uh, said this on the podcast before, but that, that guy in uh, who was lost in the Australian outback with his daughter, and he was just mm-hmm. saying how they were they were so they were just so hungry and thirsty, and they were just sort of delirious. And and he said, obviously an Australian accent on the show I watched this about twenty years ago. I watched it, so I, it got to the point where I, my daughter was so thirsty that I just was desperate. And I just I just urinated in her mouth, but but she just vomited. And I thought yeah, she she probably would. I would. If my dad peed in my mouth, I'd be sick. That's uh, that's, that's, I'm not, that's science. You know, if you were that thirsty and desperate as well, the quality of the pee would not be good. It would be yellow, possibly brown. <laughs> if, you, if you looked at your dad and he said, there's nothing for it, I'm, you're going to have to drink my pee. And then you like think back to just before the car broke down the Australian outback, and you look over at him, and he, he is glugging down a full tin of Tate and Lyle golden syrup. <laughs> you think, no, oh, no, I'm not doing that. No, it would be, it would be a uh, the mist type moment as well, because you'd be like, you just finished like wiping your chin after consuming all this urine, and then this. Seconds later, a helicopter would come over the horizon to rescue you. Yeah, or, or like an ice cream van jingle would just sound <laughs> in the distance. You're like, oh, for God's sake. Um, yeah, so so this is Kino Kingdom, Kingdom 32. We've been away for a little while. Um, but, and all I literally, Rupert, all I've done um, over the last month is watch 75 episodes of Teen Titans Go. So I'm useless. There's no point in doing Are you this. Are going to go through each of them one by one? or? Yeah, I've done a sort of an, an analysis of the themes covered therein in each of the episodes. Actually, it's probably closer to 150 because they're double episodes, 10 minutes each. So I've watched 150 episodes. Um, and yeah, uh, so I've got a few films, but very sketchy memories of them. So this is very much weighted towards you uh, this this week, Rupert, if that's okay. I mean, I, I, I've got a few that I've got a lot to say, thing a lot to say about. Um I've got a few that I've got less to say about. We've bearing in mind, Rupert, we've already covered American Ninja Two, so oh, yeah. forty-five minutes. If I hear you writing on a chalkboard, I don't even know if you can buy chalkboards anymore. Um, but one of the things that I have got to offer the episode is hmm. I managed to get get some sponsorship going on. Um, oh, it was a bit of a weird one. Obviously, things are dried up over the last month. We haven't we haven't been on the air. But I got contacted by two companies and they couldn't afford our basic rates of sponsorship. But they they sort of contacted each other, discussed it amongst themselves, and they've come up with this thing called 
dual advertising. Mm-hmm. So they, they're advertising two products in one WAV file just to cut down on their costs. It's not something oh. I've heard of before. I think it's pretty clever, to be honest. Um, yeah, but, I, can't, I can't really imagine how it would work, but I guess we'll find out. So what you're going to be... what the listeners are going to be hearing is um uh, one person a slightly older gentleman uh, contacted us because he wants to promote his podcast called the history of wood and we were also contacted by kellogg's because we've previously mentioned kellogg's start we're both big fans of kellogg's start on the show mm. um but it was discontinued in 2016 i think and they're now doing a relaunch but only based in cardiff and the surrounding suburbs so uh, it's kind of a cardiff centric relaunch of uh, kellogg's oh, right, start okay. So yeah, oh, so it's quite quite localized advertising. That's yeah, good. I, and it's always it's always nice to do you know, a bit of local business advertising. So uh, yeah, here we go. When the, I wake up in the morning, the, I love nothing more the than a nice bowl of, of Kellogg's Start. The podcast oh, is the oh, you the practice, history, the, get the, on that the, the history of of of, oh, of, of, of wood. I tell you all, there's nothing finer the, than a nice bowl in, of Kellogg's uh, Start. The, the, Start the your day with will, Start. Uh, Nice uh, bowl of uh, that is, uh, We will be the discussing the give me my the rich stat. the rich histories nice and, 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 and uses bowl of Kellogg's of, 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 of nice wood cold spoon through, cold throughout milk history and uh, room temperature stat. The, nice bowl uh, of Kellogg's so, stat. Um, if you'd like to listen to the the podcast, it's the, oh, I tell you what. The, You're going to Chinese the title, title is, uh, not me. Um, nice you bowl of Kellogg's Stat. The title, which is the. I tell you the, what. And if you've never heard Kellogg's Stat before, of, knows the of, perfect the, the, uh, the history of, 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 of Kellogg's Stat. I quite fancy a bowl of Kellogg's Stat now, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I do. I'm, yeah, I love that. Um, as, as a format, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether it'd be right for all um, advertisers necessarily. I mean, I mean, we're lucky that these kind of dovetail together because you know you could eat a bowl of Kellogg's start whilst what, listening to the History of Wood podcast. That's true. They don't. Yeah, there's no no real conflict of interest there, is there? I mean, you you can do both, um, and perfectly listenable. I mean, I could follow both <laughs> both streams of consciousness. <laughs> To listen to that. <laughs> Both streams of consciousness. I tell you what. Before I tell you what. Before we kick off again, um, I think we should see what the random name generator throws at us this week. Is it going to oh. be "Marry Me, Granddad" two? Is it going to be "Marry Me, Granddad" three? We don't know. Uh, there's only one way to find out, and that is by flicking the switch, Rupert. The mantelpiece. The mantelpiece. Mm. I mean, if it was if it was a, based on a Stephen King book, mm. I wouldn't watch it. But no, if if it was based on a Stephen <laughs> King book, I, I assume that it would be like you know the mantelpiece, like do 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 do, and it would be yeah. a, a haunted mantelpiece. But I think I can imagine it would be a, a the cover would be a like an ornate mantelpiece, and I think it would be more of a. Uh, like a 200 cigarettes thing where it would, it would show the mantelpiece through the ages and the things it's mm. witnessed with the families I mean, in the house. Yes. 
I, I yeah, I'm thinking something along those same lines. I, I was picturing uh, kind of an, an Edwardian gentleman, perhaps, with an elbow on the mantelpiece, smoking mm-hmm. a cigarette, drinking a brandy, whatever, you know. And it's the, yeah, like, what has that mantelpiece seen across the years? What what intrigue is it witnessed across the years? What, what knowledge can it impart? What It's been central to so many events. Mm. Yeah, if mantelpieces could talk... That'd be the tagline. Well, the sequel would obviously be called Mantle Pieces. So, Mantle Pie? I I don't. <laughs> I've never needed to. I'm never I'm needed to mantle pluralize mantelpieces. <laughs> so, hurtling, hurtling into, into the reviews, which is what this podcast is supposedly about. I'll let you go first because I've literally got like two films. <laughs> so, <laughs> I say literally. Um, actually <laughs> um well I'll, I'll talk about coming to america then coming to america as in coming to america too okay yeah um which is on prime uh so i guess it counts as a prime original i mean they financed it as far as i know so anyway obviously it's a sequel to the john landis film from what, 1989 88 sometime around now um and Akeem, uh played by Eddie Murphy, he's he has he's now obviously in Africa. He has three daughters but no son. And the adjacent tribe, the next Dorians, oh yeah. Um they um basically they find out he hasn't got uh, they find out he hasn't got a son, so therefore that makes him weak, etc. So, um, oh, by the way, the the main guy, the next Dorians, is played by Wesley Snipes. So, yeah, so they um, they see a weakness in the king, um, and he's like, oh no, what am I going to do? I've only got daughters to follow me. But then he finds out he has in fact got a son in America. So off they go, him and the other guy, can't remember his name. Eddie Murphy and what's the other guy's name? Oh God, um, um, it's Arsenio Hall. Yes. Um, so off they go, and the son is over there in New York. Uh, he's trying to get a job at Duke and Duke. Um, so that's one of many callbacks. Anyway, so um, Akeem brings the son. And his mum, played by Leslie Jones, back to Zamunda to live in the palace. So it's kind of a reversal of the original. Because um, most of the film is set so back in Africa, so I think in Zamunda. Um, so, I, I mean, I suppose to its credit, they don't just go back to America and spend 90 minutes commenting on how things have changed. So that's something. Um, but they do still manage to resurrect all of the characters from the first film without inventing any new ones um very late sequels like this they they constantly feel the need to make reference to how outdated the characters are and there's loads of references to modern pilots like pilots like on fleek and things like that and it's like and then then you get then you start wheeling out the remember them kind of moments like so you get performances from en vogue and salt and pepper um Oh, and they also take full advantage of the fact that Prince's music has now re-entered the market. Um, so there's a a full and not very good version of Get Off in there as well. 
So <laughs> they wheel out characters from the original. And... Full song. Yes. I find it yeah. really problematic when they're full songs in films. Mm. And it's like just. I don't a, it's not even like they're doing it in a different style. They're just doing it in the same kind of smutty style, but just doesn't sound as good. Anyway, so yeah. they wheel out characters from the original, literally making the same jokes for a lot of the time, like the woman act, acting like a dog and stuff. And I guess you can just push past that stuff. But there's also, there's loads of reused footage from the first film. It's, it's <sighs> anyone watching this wouldn't have seen the first film. And yeah, and there's some slightly awkward kind of, up. It, it's almost like it's trapped between the kind of slightly crass humour of the original, but also like modern day sensibility. So you get these weird juxtapositions. For example, there's, there's, a whole kind of joke uh, where it's basically condemning how racist like blackface is, for example. And then it's followed by a scene uh-huh. where Eddie Murphy is dressed as a Jewish man. And it's like, and it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite gel. They should have just either, they should have just stuck with one of one of them rather than playing a two hand <laughs> like that. James L. Jones gets a nice little cameo. Good. Um, in terms of characters, I'd, like Lisa from the original, you know, who he obviously meets in New York in the original is now queen back in Africa. And and the thing is, in the original, she was her whole appeal was her the fact that she was really down to earth and stuff um, and compassionate. And now she seems to be just an uptight bitch. Not quite clear why. I like Wesley Snipes character. He was he's quite charismatic and um, he's got good comedy timing. Actually, I liked him. Um, the style and tone of comedy is basically the same as the original um uh, i suppose but you realize that it's it is a bit dated now and 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 in this the the fish out of water stuff doesn't really work for a variety of reasons um firstly the the kingdom the african kingdom that they're in that they fish out of water in it's backwards in some ways um it's kind of socially backwards in some ways and traditional, but the film can't make, um, it doesn't want to make Akeem and his family unlikable. So it's just a bit regal, really. It's not like there's actually some really messed up social values or anything. It's just, they're a bit regal and pompous. Um, mm. The fact that it's poor people coming into wealth means that, they kind of understandably like living in a palace. So instead of being thrust into squalor, like in the original, they're swept into enjoyable wealth. And that, when you think about that, that's just not as funny, to be honest. Like poor people being given loads of cool stuff isn't as funny as rich people slumming it, if you see what I mean. Um, No. Yeah. So, and... On top of that, one of the main plot points is the fact that Akeem has now become sort of stuffy and aggressive. So basically, he's not funny anymore. So Eddie, I mean Eddie Murphy just looks knackered. That's right. Um, if I wanted to see a film where Eddie Murphy isn't funny, I would have watched anything from 1998 to 2018. Now is the could time. Could have gone early. You could have watched Beverly Hills Cop three. <laughs> <laughs> you could have done it. Um, <laughs> So the, the the heavy lifting in the comedy comes from the main guy, whose name I don't know, and Leslie Jones, whose name I do know. Do know. Leslie Jones is just loud. She's not funny. Um, it's And overall, 
it, it's it's more sentimental anyway than funny, even more than the original, which had that issue itself. Um, but its messages of progress are pretty shallow, and the changes of heart amongst his characters are just ridiculous and sort of just magical instant changes of heart. Um, so that doesn't ring true either. And, and, and this is something I was uh, discussing with someone offline, but it just doesn't look like a film. That it looks like a TV show. I mean, John Landis was still making movies in the late 80s that looked like cinematic films, but this just looks like it was made on the cheap with a horrible, a horrible, gaudy digital camera. It's so, funny you should, you should say that, because f- f- I watched... <clears throat> Sorry, I actually watched half of this, right? Um, right. Because I I like the original, or I think I like the original. It's been so long since I've seen it. And and I and I really liked Eddie Murphy and Dolomite. Dolomite, I didn't, or Dolomite is my name. I didn't, Dolomite wasn't like a 10 out of 10 film, but it, it passed, like, I would laughed sort of throughout it, and I enjoyed right. it, and it was good to see Eddie Murphy on form again. So mm-hmm. I was, like, sort of half excited about this, because I would have preferred kind of some sort of new vehicle, get Eddie Murphy back to, you know, what he's really good at is that quick-witted, you know, uh, cheeky chappy sort of stuff. Because uh, he, he can be brilliant. And with this, uh, it's funny, I, you saying that it looked like a TV show. I sat, sat there for 40 minutes and realised I hadn't laughed. And all I'd done is sit there thinking, this feels to me like a slightly embarrassing... It feels like this is based on a TV show and this is mm-hmm. a movie of a TV show. Nothing to do with the filming so much. I didn't pick up on that. Just the sense of it. It was like it was like a one joke that has clearly been stretched too thinly. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're watching a film based on something that should be like 20 minutes long. And I, I just felt slightly awkward and I just gave up halfway through. Yeah. Well, it. yeah, I, I wouldn't say that the original was like a timeless classic or anything, but it was at least consistently pretty funny and you know like it did have some funny characters in it but you can't just resurrect them 30 years later and expect that to be enough the hilarity to ensue yeah like there's so few new characters i mean obviously you've got the the son and his mother but they're not particularly interesting and who else you got wesley snipes he was the one good addition so that was it, really. So, yeah, very disappointing. But then maybe I wasn't really expecting that much anyway. Yeah. I mean, what kind of reviews has it got from other lesser outlets aside from ours? Because I didn't um, really... Not great, I think. Mm, yeah. I, I, it's, it, I get the sense that maybe there's... Because everyone kind of loves Eddie Murphy anyway. It's like... I, I suspect it's probably got middling reviews rather than terrible reviews. I'm guessing. Because of just a general goodwill, um, I do. I do wish he would. Um, th- he just needs a really good script. He just needs. He needs to make a good film. I mean, he's six sixty now, and it it would be good to see a final like good 10, 15 year run of him just doing solid gold. Yes, but this like relying on the past stuff needs to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I, again, I'm going to talk about a film, but again, I do apologize. I've watched these films sometimes like six, seven weeks ago, and I. Do not make notes. So, <laughs> I can, can you remember the title? I can. It's coming to America from 1988. No, it's um, <laughs> it's uh, Hellgate, a film from 1989. Um, and this uh, is a is a film 
Uh, again, I mean, it, well, I'll just read the plot of Wikipedia because it's just easy for me. A motorcycle gang kidnaps a young woman from a diner and brutally kills her. Many years later, the girl's father finds a magic crystal that can bring life back to dead objects. Um, now, this film, right, start, it's, it, it's a really bizarre film because it feels much earlier than 1989, the way it's, the way it's filmed, and it just feels really, really cheap. And I thought it was early to mid-80s. Um, it's one of those horror films where everything is sort of smoky and clearly on a set which is totally fine but the main characters in this film uh kick it kicks off sorry with this uh like i said this girl being killed by this motorcycle gang in this ghost town and then it cuts forward and this is cut quite key because there's a huge problem with the with where, where this film is set like what time you're supposed to be looking at so it seems to leap forward a good few years and then this these four they say kids as if they're teenagers you know late late teens early 20s the main man in this film ron palillo is literally at this point a 40 year old man and i thought you were not like and i will say like oh he looks 40 he he turned up they're all like oh yeah let's go to the chalet out near that ghost town and just get clattered on boots and he gets in the car and i thought well, are you there dad are you tagging along are you there father um but no he he's the main <laughs> young buck <laughs> and and what happens is he gets sidetracked into this house where the, her f- the girl's father who accidentally killed killed her when um when this motorcycle gang were attacking her he threw an axe at the guy's face who was kidnapping her and he crashed into a wall and killed his own daughter so he's found this crystal that can bring her back to life she's clearly a zombie she's clearly <laughs> like a, a zombie and and he's just really bizarrely like oddly in love with his daughter so she falls in love with this 40 year old bloke and then he the father tries to kill him he escapes from the house this is in the first like 15 minutes he escapes from this house where he's seen a zombie who's tried to seduce him even though he's got a girlfriend in this cabin he's driving to and the father is clearly bonkers and he's got all this like metal in his face and is insane and has tried to kill him he's got out of there with his life driven to the chalet turns up and says Oh yeah, I just um, I went to the chalet and like got attacked. And his girlfriend says, "Oh, did you try to shag anyone?" And he says, "No, no one there. There's no hot girls there." And they make him go back to this house, and they all just drive back to this house and all just start laughing. And you're like, "What?" Um, and the film, I couldn't tell what time period I was looking at because the father, for some reason, in the past, he is just like a bloke in his forties. And then you see him in the future, and he's he's just got loads of metal on his face, like a like an eye patch made out of like rivets and grey mm-hmm. hair. But then it'll cut cut back to the past when she's still alive, and he he looks like that then as well, even though he didn't look like that in the start. So it completely throws off what what you're looking at. You know, what is this now? Is this then? What, and then it'll cut to the diner where everyone looks the same, and you think, what time period is this? I can't follow this. And badly it, edited, it, right? Okay. It ends up in this just ridiculous facade of this ghost town which i actually genuinely to this day cannot tell if it's supposed to be um like a ghost town where like a few um sort of um ragtag homeless people live or if it's an old carnival ghost town that is that is still working i really couldn't tell and it's not this this isn't a lost classic at all this is just a really awkwardly made cheap film that it's i can imagine it's good to watch with a few people and just laugh at it because it's it's yeah. bizarre it's just really hard to follow and bizarrely made 10 mm. out of 10 
Is there anyone famous in it at all? I am looking at the Wikipedia now, and even the director, I can't click on anything apart from Vidmark Entertainment and Ron Palillo, who is the 40-year-old. Um, it's, yeah, uh, it's just... Like, it's, I wish I could remember more about it, but... It's a non-hyperlinker, okay. <laughs> yeah, but you know I'm you know, it's a good film when you click on it and everything is black. There's not a blue hyperlink. It's right. <laughs> right, I won't get the... Um six disc special edition blu-ray of this one then <laughs> no best not um it's not another ninth configuration um no. where i literally order it as you're talking about it um okay what is that called hellgate mm. hellgate 1989 oh, that and that was, was on, on prime. it was on prime you know it was on prime also on prime into the wild speaking of chris mccandless <clears throat> Chris McCandless being the, it says based on a true story, Chris McCandless, he traipsed off into the American outback um, to with a fun-sized Twix and can of tripe, but no can opener to live off the land. It didn't end well. Anyway, so this journey into the world is directed by Sean Penn, very nicely directed by Sean Penn. Uh, but it's more about the, the journey rather than the ending. Um, yeah, it's quite hard to sympathise with Chris McCandless. I mean, uh, boo-hoo, a Harvard entrant Chris McCandless. He's got such pressure from his parents to pay for his Harvard education um, and buy him a new car, obviously, naturally. Such stress they put on him. So anyway, he gives away his 24 grand college fund. Um and then he wanders into the wilderness, deliberately out of contact with his parents. I mean, it's it talk about an unbelievable lack of gratitude. Um, but he, as he puts it, or possibly as his sister puts it, because she's kind of narrates, he is apparently emancipating himself from the absurd and tedious process of graduating college. Yes. So, um, and of course, ironically, the only reason anyone remembers this man is because he was a rich kid with massive privilege he threw it all away um so so it's well before i go into the film i mean the, the incident itself has has got quite a cult following really i mean i know that there's there's been many many uh search and rescue operations for people who are decided to follow in his footsteps um since his uh journey uh, and actually there's been two actual drownings during the pilgrimages so other people have died trying to follow in his footsteps brilliant um so it's it is quite telling it, it it's quite telling that within moments of him arriving in the wilderness he basically finds a bus right and effectively turns it into a caravan home almost like he actually does want a home in fact and not to live off the land at all but there you go so the sister's narration bends over backwards to paint the parents as monsters and all of their dishonesty and their coldness. Um, so they they basically fought and they probably were fairly unpleasant. And to be fair to the film, I don't think Sean Penn is saying that Chris's actions were rational. Uh, he's not excusing them. I think he's just explaining them. And he does allow some sympathy for the parents, um, acknowledging that they are allowed to that parents are allowed to change and grow and learn just like a young person desires to do. Um, 
Yeah, so, but yes, Chris McCandless himself, ultimately he's a, a freeloader with nothing nothing to trade with in society, really. I mean, he's just going around the place um, just accepting people's kindness, really. Um, the film is arranged in literal coming-of-age chapters, so you get adolescence, manhood, etc. And I, I think... I think that's quite telling about where Sean Penn is coming from with this because he is, in a way, tacitly saying that Chris McCandless needed to grow up, really. He needed time to grow up before, you know, before anyone makes a decision like this, you know, to see the world in some way rather than before committing to something so reckless yeah. yeah yeah dismissing all of the systems that have given him this opportunity in the first place anyway so it and that it means it has value in in fleshing out the story of this basically a stupid young man who committed suicide by nature and i think it's trying to define him the film is trying to define him by more than just that incident which is fair enough and it's compassionate but doesn't necessarily mean he has anything profound to say about modern society and it doesn't make him any less stupid in fact it makes him look even more stupid because actually if you see along the way he has countless opportunities to turn back um or indeed turn south not just go towards like really stark mountains in um in alaska which is where he's going so he's going he's going north like towards the arctic circle so but yeah, he doesn't take any of these opportunities. It's a really well edited film, and it's nice. It's really nicely textured, um, and there's a really, really nice performance from what's his face, Hal Holbrook. Um, yeah. And yeah, he's obviously Hal Holbrook's pretty old by this point, and and I think he's this that part of the film does speak to something quite profound about Chris McCandless's character. The fact that his sense of bereavement is the lack of a father figure. And there's something quite poignant in the idea that by this point, he has gone too far into his own kind of myth making to possibly turn back from this ridiculous odyssey. And, and Emil Hirsch as Chris McCandless is very good. Uh, you know, this is a very good performance yeah. and he really does transform physically for it it's quite alarming at the end how much like, weight he loses um so yeah it's a film that well the whole story really not just this film but the story it's one that splits audiences largely along the lines of those who see him as some sort of inspirational counterculture hero and those who think he's a self-absorbed idiot i'm pretty sure he's the latter i won't lie but that doesn't make this a bad film because it's not um, hagiography. It's not saying it is. It it's not romanticizing it too badly. And I think Sean Penn does a good job of portraying the adventure as Chris McCandless himself would have seen it. So it's almost subjectively speaking. So in the bits which are romanticized, it's almost like those are the parts that he would, it, where he's finally seeing what he was he left the house for if you see what i mean this is yeah. why he went on this journey because of those magical moments but actually a lot of it's just really harsh and um and bleak and <laughs> unforgiving um and to be fair again i mean it is all balanced out with a lot of people saying to chris mccandless well basically what we're thinking which is what the hell do you think you're doing so 
I think it's a pretty, it, it hasn't changed my mind on Chris McCandless, but it, it, I think it's a pretty good movie. Um, surprisingly good. I can just imagine you saying that it was it was narrated by his you know the, an actress who plays his sister, mm-hmm. and I can just imagine him sort of writing in his diary, uh, you know, when he's sort of overlooking a city or something and writing that I'm going to leave all this behind. I'm going to go out to Alaska and I'm going to, even though I've had no training and I've got no supplies and I've not prepared for this at all and I'm constantly warned this is dangerous. I'm going to go up to Alaska and just completely live off the land. And as he closes the book, there's a, the narration comes in with a wow. <laughs> and that just happens after every scene. Or yeah, every or she just goes, whoops. <laughs> yeah, or... Mm. <laughs> it's not fleshing out the character at all. It's just reacting, <laughs> reacting with disbelief. <laughs> yeah, I... I I've got to be fair with that. I know that Eddie Vedder did the music. I think the song was called Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Yeah, the music is pretty good. It's a lot of dusty kind of country and bluesy type stuff, really, acoustic stuff. So, yeah, that was fine. Oh, yeah, as I said, it's like a really, technically, it's an amazingly well-made film and beautifully edited and nicely shot, well-acted. Yeah. And... I think as a film, it probably has something to say about human nature and human interactions, but possibly not what Chris McCandless set out to illuminate, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, I watched, again, another film I have foggy memories of. Not perhaps. Last of the Summer. I was going to say. I was going to say, I was trying to think of another character from Last of the Summer Wine. I cannot remember anyone. Uh, what Peter Salas memories of is uh, No Good Deed, uh, a film from 2014 starring Idris Elba. This film is was odd because in my in my head, Idris Elba is a big movie star and has been for a while. And I know he was in, mm-hmm. I haven't seen the show, but he's in a show with one word called something. Uh, Luther. Luther. The Wire was the one that brought him to people's attention as well but when was the wire that would have been late 2000s i guess well well this is the thing right this film no good deed 2014 apparently uh really negatively received and but but was a box office success and it's i don't know if it was him trying to break america or something um but it's a really it's a really bizarre film to see him in because it's a really flat thriller um, a really generic thriller, and I don't know why he would have chosen to be in this film. Um, the the mm. plot is um, he is uh, Idris Elba is a prisoner called Colin Evans, which is literally the name of my fiance's grandfather, um, and he has been in prison for fifteen years, and he goes to a parole hearing where he gives a really good speech as to how he's been rehabilitated and how he helps, how he's helped prisoners and taught them in in the prison system. He's completely turned himself around, and he's ready to be released. And you can see that for a couple of the parole board, it has to be unanimous for this parole board to let him out. And I think two of the three are sort of a bit taken by it. And it's quite funny because the third guy just sort of sits there with a really sort of stoic expression on his face and just stands up and says, this, this is what, this is what 
this man does. He's like a he's a really hyper intelligent charmer, but he's just, and then he just reads out a load of stuff, just saying that he's he's just a like an absolute psychopath, and this is what he does. He charms people, and then he completely goes back on his word, and he's got problems with his his temper and stuff. So uh, they, of course, he goes back to prison, and on the way back, he kills his the the people transporting him and escapes. He goes back to his ex-wife who has clearly moved on and he's like shocked that she's moved on even though it's been 15 years or like it's he served like five or ten years or whatever and um and he loses his temper and kills her and now this is something that happens throughout the film right because we're supposed to believe that this man has been in prison and has put on this facade of normalcy for mm. a multiple years and yet the second he's out he loses his temper and <laughs> murders every chance he gets so it's you know, okay that's not believable um he cr- supposedly crashes his car accidentally in really heavy rain outside this house and goes into this house and it's a, a woman there her husband who clearly doesn't love her he comes home from work literally ignores her and says i gotta go away for the weekend I, I gotta go visit my dad and just leaves without like even speaking to his kids his young kids so they've mm. clearly got this awful marriage and he drives off so this woman's in this huge house by herself with two kids and idris elba comes in and we know he's a, a little bit of a dicky duda but she just thinks he's this handsome stranger who's you know come in from the rain sort of thing and he's charming her and uh, yeah she her neighbor comes over and she's saying oh you know your husband's uh, been a bit of a knob why didn't you when you show idris your bum and she's saying no, i can't show my <laughs> because i've got a husband i'm i'm paraphrasing um so so w- w- the the bulk of this film <laughs> the main the main meat of this film i told you it's been a long time it is is this supposed tension that's supposed to build up because he's obviously c- capable of extreme acts of violence but he's such a charmer with with uh, this woman and her kids and, and the neighbor mm. and there are some really nice moments in it where i mean idris elba is a good actor so he plays the role really well he looks great and he's he has genuinely got charisma and charm and then when people aren't looking at him he's got a little little skull because he's thinking i'm bloody losing my marbles here um <laughs> there's there's a really funny scene where the neighbor just completely sees through his facade <laughs> instantly, <laughs> which is quite funny um but the problem is the the I don't want to say twist the way the film, the, the direction the film goes in is so blatant from the start because there's so few characters in, in it. Mm. So he's only really got one reason he would be at that house. If it was engine, if his crash wasn't accidental, it was engineered. So the, the film is really flat. It's got quite a nice end and it's not too sentimental, but I was watching the whole film thinking, why is Idris Elba in this? Why would he sign up to this film? This just seems like anyone could be in this film, but he is good in it, but the film isn't good around him. Yeah. Oh, that's um, that sounds it, mediocre. It is eighty-four mediocre. It is eighty-four minutes long. So and the okay. and the titles take sixty minutes to to roll through. So <laughs> it's the same length as Commando, then. So it must be exactly <laughs> the same quality. Um. Yeah. It's it's okay. This is a film. I know you're saying like with um with children. And sometimes you just want to chuck some in the back, or you don't have to fully focus on. This is the definition of that. <laughs> okay, good, good. Because yeah, I've, I've been, I started watching a, some sort of like, um, like, uh, like a what's it called? A court drama the other day called Guilty as Sin. Just because I had Don Johnson in it, really, and Mike, it's the plot is so complicated. And when you got a child. It's, 
yelling for your attention is um it's a challenge i won't lie um okay so i won't watch that then (laughs) when he said no good deed i thought there's no one with um that's mr deeds with adam sandler (laughs) it's the one with ryan gosling and what's her face kirsten dunce is it oh i talked about that a few weeks ago didn't i that is all good things all good right okay um okay well I, this is the last of the films i'm going to talk about at length because all the ones after this are pretty should be pretty swift but okay. i want to talk about i care a lot which is a prime original okay and i don't i mean the fact that it was made like last year is quite remarkable for this podcast um <laughs> it stars rosamund pike who plays a total cow who has a racket where she takes elderly people right gets a court order to become their guardian and then sticks them in an overpriced care facility where they're not allowed to speak with their family and they're basically left there to rot until they die she's got a network of people on the inside including the boss of the facility her own girlfriend plus the district judge all under her thumb so she can act with impunity so anyway one uh, one day um, Rosamund Pike's character puts this old lady in a hospital, uh, old lady played by Diane uh, Weist, the brilliant Diane Weist. Um, but she happens to be the mother of a Russian gang boss. So now it's uh, Rosamund Pike's firm versus the Russian mafia. Um, naturally, it's quite difficult to sympathize with either party here. Um, but the point is, they're essentially the same. One trades in old people and the other one trades in young women trafficking them. So, uh, I mean, but the closest the film really gets to satire is when this mob lawyer says that Rosamund's hustle is the epitome of the American dream, apparently, uh, which is stupid because it's clearly not, but it sounds good. And it's consistent with the film's very brutally pessimistic outlook, which really got on my nerves. Um, So Rosamund Pike she's got this constant refrain that she wants to be rich and the only way to get there is through deceit, manipulation and cruelty. And the only motivation is greed. And it's such a simplistic starting point. It's no more sophisticated than basically half the action movies we sit through. So uh, I think that the black comedy sit through love my boy love and enjoy. (laughs) Sorry. I meant wallow in. Um, I get, the feeling that that the black comedy tone of this film was chosen so that no one would question the sheer implausibility of it all, because the idea that a single individual could sign off on the mental capacity of any individual and then stop their relatives from listening uh, from visiting is just palpably untrue. Um, And yet the abuse of elder citizens in care is a genuine issue. So you've got, you've got this very cynical portrayal of this, mafia-like organization of people exploiting elderly people uh which is patently patently ridiculous and and it's so it's quite risky in a way that and the idea that everyone involved in the center would effectively be complicit nurses to security guard is ridiculous and it massively wavers in tone anyway sometimes it's almost horror-like in its clinical brutality but then it'll veer into broad comedy and like you'll get a hilarious scene where peter dinklage hurls food at his lawyer or someone will get knocked out by like a burst oxygen tube and stuff. And 
uh, it's not helped that it's shot and acted in quite a realist style. So you've got lots of ugly fluorescent lighting and there's this general sense that it's grounded in the real world, but no one speaks or acts like someone in the real world. Um, so you have this awkward styleless midpoint where it looks like reality, but nothing realistic happens, happens within it. I think I would have rather had like a proper absurdist comedy or a serious drama rather than this irritating irreverent half ha halfway house which isn't funny or dramatic and it's got really irritating incongruous synth wave and techno soundtrack which i guess is just there to make it sound hip i'm not sure um no idea of why rosamund pike is doing what she's doing um you know if it had something broader to say, a general truth perhaps about the way that people are exploited in society, then I suppose it wouldn't matter, but it doesn't because it's wholly implausible. But And and the film really shifts tone in, in the last third where it becomes more of a conventional crime thriller, right? And this is where I really lost interest because we've just spent over an hour establishing how hideous Rosamund Pike is, right? And now we're suddenly meant to sympathise with her when the mob start attacking her and her girlfriend. And we're suddenly meant to start rooting for them to take down the Russian mafia and escape. And it's like, well, it's not that I didn't care. I, did, I, I, I actually did care. I wanted them to fail. And just because <laughs> their actually truly evil scheme happened to land on an actual criminal, what about the other countless lives that they've completely ruined? You know, it's, it's basic language of storytelling, isn't it? Why would I want them to get away with it? And I get that, Peter Dinklage's mob are evil as well. But when you think about it, at least there's a chance, there's the prospect that they may get arrested uh, because it, they are literally an organised criminal gang. Whereas Rosamund Pike has constructed this web of professionals to systematically corrupt the legal system and imprison people for profit and leave people to die without seeing their loved ones. And, and so on balance, she is actually even more of a menace. And yet... She's the one we're going to be rooting for. <laughs> I think, I guess, it was, it's not really clear. But anyway, and, and I couldn't help thinking that Rosamund Pike, she was in uh, Gone Girl, of course. That was really like almost like her most famous role. And that was a film that did a really good job of presenting a genuine moral and ethical conundrum. Um, but the only conundrum with I Care A Lot is do I keep watching for the full two hours? And did you? I did, actually. <laughs> so not not sure You've gone through the conundrum, so others don't have to be conundrumed by it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I really found it unpleasant, not funny. So film of the week, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> um... I yeah, I'm not going to watch that film. Um, it sounds okay. like it. It sounds like it. It was echoing. It was. It was ringing the bell of the Wolf of Wall Street for me, where mm. I'm thinking. I'm watching. I'm thinking. Am I? Am I feeling a different way to how this film wants me to feel? Yes. So, um, yeah. yeah, classic. Um, how many more films have you got? Because I've got quite a few. I've got three. Okay, I've got about seven. Do you want to go through one more? I, I can. I could quickly run through Escape from Alcatraz, which is also on Prime. Um, on, is this a Clint Eastwood film? It is. Oh, 1979, good, good. directed by Don Siegel, obviously did Dirty Harry as well. Um, it is literally about Clint Eastwood planning an escape from Alcatraz Island. 
and there's nothing more to it really than that which is weird because it was set in the late 90s and he's just there as a tourist so at the end he just gets on a ferry doesn't he yeah he's a tourist being shown around by ed harris um <laughs> so well although apparently they spent like half a million dollars basically restoring power to alcatraz because alcatraz was closed at the time they made it uh, made this film and they they fixed it all up to look at, as it would have done so it's quite impressive um and I just just a, a few comments on brutal prison dramas because that is essentially what this is for the most part and I, I, I was struck by the a shower thought that there may be a through line from sort of prisoner of war dramas that came before it. I'm thinking like Bridge Over the River Kwai, Bridge on the River Kwai, sorry, Great Escape, Papillon, these sorts of prisoner of war things where they have to escape. And I haven't really interrogated this theory at all, but the appeal seems to be essentially the same, where it's this sort of, it's all about raw masculinity men having their dignity shattered uh you've got sort of rivalry based drama you've got interpersonal political intrigue you've got um survival stripped to its bare essentials and and then of course i suppose you have the prison drama after that which with stuff like shawshank and grimale in the 90s I, it doesn't seem to be much of an appetite for prison dramas so much these days i can't really think of many there's I mean, there are good ones like Startup. That was a very good recent one, but I don't know. It doesn't seem to be um, the big thing at the moment. Anyway, but it was, this was probably pretty gritty at the time in 1979, but it's quite tame by today's standards. Um, uh, and, you know, it like a lot, of, like sports movies, it's kind of a tick list of conventions, really. There's even a moment where Clint Eastwood shakes some concrete dust from his trouser leg um this there's some good it's good fun watch uh, like spotting vaguely famous people like um one of the characters is played by mr heckles from friends and there's fred ward from tremors he's in it and it's a film debut for danny glover so that was that's pretty cool um mr ha mr heckles from friends was in sudden not sudden death oh death warrant as well with john claude van damme uh, yeah he's pretty good actually in this um the script is amazingly spare. Uh, so loads of the lines are just monosyllabic and and everything feels significant. And it, it's all played very straight. It doesn't have like the mad energy of like One Flew of the Cooker's Nest or anything. But, you know, this is Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood. They're, they're serious guys. So um, it, it we never find out any of the crimes of the inmates. That's a cool, it's quite a crafty decision, I'd say, because it forces you into a position of like humanism, really. So you don't you're not making any moral judgments or moral balancing in your mind because you don't have the information sort of thing. So it's it's an old fashioned action movie, I would say, insofar as it's not about insofar as it it, it is about the actions of people, but it's not about fights and shootouts so much. So I mean it's more about tension and atmosphere and yeah, and it yeah, Don Siegel nails that. It's a really stifling claustrophobic film. Um, is it? I'd say there's a problem with the lack of threat, like because Clint Eastwood just comprehensively outsmarts the guards and the warden and everyone at every turn, and and the only physical threat on in the prison, he just keeps beating him up, you know. So it's not like he's even like like under threat from that person. He just he's also the hardest person in the prison as well. Um, 
I do, but I do like its simplicity and its efficiency, and I, I think the tension is very well handled. It may feel a little bit underwhelming and lacking in dynamism these days, but I think if you're looking for like relentless kinetic thrills in any 70s film, then frankly, you're barking up the wrong tree. So it's all about mood, atmosphere, and just manly men um, getting the job done, really. Or not, perhaps. Mm. Yes, yeah, so it's good. It is good. I, I will watch that. I'm enjoying seventies. Well, I was enjoying seventies films back when I used to watch movies. Um, yeah, they and will happen things, again. You know, we're talking about like how a film that looks like a cinematic movie. This film looks like a cinematic movie. It looks like a film. You wouldn't think to yourself, "Ooh, this this is a TV show or whatever." You just think, "Well, no, that's a movie. It looks like a film." <laughs> <laughs> Which is good when you're watching a film, isn't it? It's, it's quite like, handy, really. Isn't it? If you're reading a book it's and like, then you like wake, wake your sleeping wife up next to you and she said, "What? What is it, darling?" And you say, "This is a book." <laughs> Thanks. Or you're, like, or you're listening to some music and <laughs> you turn to your wife and say, "Is this? Is this a statue?" No, it's, it's music. It's, it's the other stuff. Ah, oh, yeah. I was a bit confused. <laughs> The other stuff, you know, because you've, you've got statues and then the polar opposite of statues, music, haven't you? One of them's, you remember one of them exists in physical space. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. And the other one's just for like vibration of air. And you're like, oh, yeah. The, sta- <laughs> yeah, statue with the, no, the boobs and no arms, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I watched The Sisters Brothers, which is a film I've secretly been waiting for for a while. And I'm going to make it, obviously, I've only seen a few films this week. Um, and I'm going to make no secret of the fact this is my film of the week. And not only that, it's a film that I've been thinking about, not because it had, um, it, it posed any moral questions that you know, really stuck with my mind. It, it's with me for, for two reasons really one of them is that I, it put Riz Ahmed on my list of men who could seduce me at a hotel bar and it's also everything that man it's just I was looking and thinking what a beautiful man like what a talented beautiful man um He's so chiseled and, as well yeah and also it it's well I'll, I'll go into the other thing so this is a film it's a Netflix exclusive I think um with John Cirelli and uh Joaquin Phoenix play the sisters brothers Eli and Charlie and they they're basically just mercenaries for hire in, in the wild west and they work for uh Rutger Hauer who plays a character called the Commodore and I think it was one of his last roles Good. fortunately that was quite sad actually seeing him uh, mm. you know just thinking come back Rutger come back to me my son um, but at least he was he was still making quality to the end I mean obviously absolutely. he's been in a fair amount of shit in the time but <laughs> Because you say that, but then you look at stuff like Split Second, and it is entertaining. It's, it's not, true. He's not he been is in amazing in it. Yeah, that, like Wanted Dead or Alive, good, good, silly fun. He's never anything that you think. Oh, this is just boring. Which is the Split ultimate. Second, the one where he um, interrogates a dog in the toilets, and he's eating chocolate all the time. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Please continue. So the film sort of uh, sets off with. The, the sisters brothers going after someone called Herman Warm, played by uh, Riz Ahmed, who we we don't know why Rucker Howard's character, the Commodore, wants him hunted down, but they 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 kind of don't really think much into it. They're just going to go there and capture him, take him back to the Commodore, probably to be killed. They just want to get paid and carry on, and they very much move from one job to the next. Um, and 
as we see Razamid's character, he we find out that he's actually got this this chemical formula that he believes can um, make gold shine in rivers. So it makes it much easier to collect gold, and he's going to sort of use this chemical to find gold and obviously um, get rich. And he uh, is also sort of hunted by a bloke uh, played by... Uh, sorry, Jekyll. I'm looking at the Joaquin Phoenix, and there's a lot of J's going on here with John, Joaquin, Jake. I'm like, which is which? Um, see, he's uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. He sort of falls in with him, and whereas Jake Gyllenhaal's character is originally supposed to hunt him down for the sisters, brothers, and wait for them, he ends up going off with him, and they they form a friendship and a business partnership. Um, mm-hmm. So the film is very much follows the sisters brothers as they go on this on this journey through the west to, to track down Rizami's character and take him back and you you see that very much john Cirelli's character is slightly more level-headed slightly more in depth whereas Joaquin phoenix's character is very hot-headed and, and lives lives for the kill and they have sort of many conversations uh a campfire at night where they, they chat and they obviously have this intense brotherly love for each other but they're very different people and they're obviously both getting on a bit in their 40s and well to be honest back in then they could be 20 because everyone died when they were in their late teens back then didn't they <laughs> so much awfulness in the world um and whacking phoenix clearly has no in, no intention he's like what would we do if we stopped like you know you just it's all about just moving the fun and drinking moving from one job to the next and i didn't expect while watching this film for it to have the impact on me that it did because the first start there's an absolutely buzzing scene involving a spider that you were really going to struggle mm. with like i did but what really struck me about this film is I started watching it because when I first heard about this film, I was very much on a Jake Gyllenhaal run, and Jake Gyllenhaal, sorry. So I was I was in it for that, and I've always loved John C. Reilly, but I've mainly seen him in comedic parts. In this film, he's amazing. Um, yeah. And and you, you, when it gets to certain scenes where you 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 realise that he's maybe looking the life he's led of such violence and horror and living hand to mouth and just constantly on the move making no making no meaningful relationships only really having his brother looking out for each other in this startlingly violent living they've created for themselves and you realize when he when he kind of sees beyond that and just maybe wants something else and the things that he's missed in his life and the things he might not even be capable of in terms of an emotional spectrum there is a scene in this film (laughs) <laughs> where he he take he takes uh he's like there above a bar and Joaquin Phoenix is battered downstairs. Uh, there's a scene where where John Cirella takes a prostitute upstairs and it it's heartbreaking. And it, it was that scene that really stuck with me. And it's a oddly considering there are lots of shootouts, there's a lot of violence, and mm. in some in some in it's beautifully filmed and it's it's considering the amount of action in it. It's very dialogue driven because, because the the actors have such high quality on, on their air game, every conversation feels important. Every interaction is important. And the, the, the things that happen all have some sort of emotional value. And I, I absolutely adored it. And I think it's one I will watch again. But um, for me, as much as I fancy John C. Riley, and I'm a big fan of all the actors in it. Um, Sorry, Razami. Yeah, John C. Reilly was the absolute stand-up for me, and it just made me put him on my list of maybe men I wouldn't kiss at a bar, but it's men that I would hug at a bar. <laughs> um, 
Where where is this available? Because I clearly am going to be watching this. This is a Netflix exclusive, I think. Okay. It's um, it's directed by um Jack Audiard, and I, I know I've heard him for uh, heard of him before. He did a Prophet, which was a good, very good movie as well. Um, and he did Rust and Bone, which is about a really harrowing drama about a killer whale, um, killer whale sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he's a he's a good good director. So watch them as well. But I'm definitely going to be watching this. Uh, absolutely absolutely yeah good excellent um well i'll whiz through a couple then which are on disney plus um so obviously taking full advantage of the fact that um disney plus has now added a channel called star to its list whatever that is um i don't know what it is um so obviously i immediately put on stakeout um from 1987 (laughs) which is a comedy action movie starring Richard Dreyfus and Emilio Estevez, who are cops trying to track down an escaped prisoner, played by Aidan Quinn. And so they do a stakeout on Aidan Quinn's girlfriend's house. She's played by Madeline Stowe from Last of the Mohicans, not Rosie O'Donnell. Um, so Madeline Stowe. And uh, so they stake her out to find the the fugitive and meanwhile Richard Dreyfus starts falling for her even though Emilio Estevez would be more of a natural fit for a lady of her age but anyway so this script isn't very good that's the crux of the issue and it's a weirdly unconvincing dialogue like there'll there'll be lines like oh what a boner They'll call someone and it's like, did people ever say that? Or someone will react to someone saying something and they go, oh, that's a hoot, sarcastically. And it's, and But then other times there'll be just like F-bombs dropped elsewhere. And it's like, what's going on? Why, why well, are they speaking? Like, like multiple people wrote the script because it wasn't very good and they tried to salvage oh. it. <laughs> yeah, maybe it went through multiple revisions. I'm not sure. Um, problem is, the real problem is, is that Dreyfus and Estevez, their characters just aren't very appealing. Because the first thing they do when they get into the stakeout position across the street is just ogle their subject, this beautiful woman through binoculars. And in fact, their whole attitude to women pretty much stinks the whole way through. And later on, right, Richard Dreyfus goes into the house, sneaks into the house to get more evidence, right? He hides under a bed. And then when she comes home, um, and of course it's like, oh, tension, tension. Instead of escaping through the window, right, he gleefully creeps up and watches her in the shower and it's done as like a kind of like whimsical comedy moment and it's but it's not funny and it's just really uncomfortable um and then the, the, the whole thing about richard dreyfus meeting uh madeline so's character um to kind of romance her and obviously so he's staking her out whilst also having this to duplicitous relationship with her so then so that's another level of creepy. Plus, then add on top of that the fact that he looks about 20 years older than her. I think he's only actually about 11 years older, but he looks a lot older. And he's always looked like he's in his 50s. Exactly. Even in Jaws. I mean, he was many, they keep referring to him as the young buck in Jaws. And it's like, you look about 45, mate. But <laughs> I'm 35. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and yeah, so back to Dreyfus and Estevez. The. <laughs> 
could just imagine Robert Shaw just saying, you look about 45, mate, every time it's but, his line of dialogue. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, so Dreyfus and Estevez, the the interplay between those two main characters, the problem is it's not interesting because they get along too well for it to be funny. So, I mean, like, they're already established partners from the very start. So you don't get the usual thing of like these two men being thrust together and they're against each other. And then, and they, yeah. yes. And they, uh, they kind of clumsily learning to work together. There's none of that. They just simply work together and they work quite well together. So that means that has the effect of meaning that the, it means that they are in on the comedy together if you see what I mean, like frat boys. So they are finding the comedy in each other and finding each other funny, rather than us finding it funny about the fact that they don't get along. They do get along and they find each other funny. And so it's dramatically boring and also comedically inert because they have nothing to spark off. Like it, sounds, joke- it, sounds, it sounds like you're just watching two people going, way, way. That is basically yeah. what it is, the whole film. And so, yeah, the joke is on other people and it's not on themselves, which is just absolutely kills it. Now, it's directed by John Badham, who is known for Saturday Night Fever, Bird on a Wire, Nick of Time, obviously, War Games. Um, who, he's a competent hack, I'd call him. And the production values are fine and obviously it's got some decent actors Forrest Whitaker rocks up um but it's all just wasted on a really dreary script which frankly would have seemed dated at the time I'd imagine so stakeout not it uh, yeah not worth returning to um I'll also mention Conan the Barbarian which is also on Disney plus good haven't checked if Conan destroyers on there yet but I surely will. Or Red Sonia. Um, this was made in 1982. And it's surprisingly lavish and surprisingly self-serious film because I've never seen it before. Oh, really? Uh, nice. Yeah, so this is my first time. I was a Conan <laughs> virgin. Um, so obviously Arnold Schwarzenegger plays Conan, um, who as a kid was orphaned by James Earl Jones, who I think is actually wearing one of Grace Jones's wigs in in his role and as an adult conan marches across the uh, fictional land of hyboria to get revenge and get his dad's sword back basically there's a lot more to the plot than that but that is essentially what it is it's it's a long film and it does lack a certain whimsy which as you know i do need in my high fantasy um Mm -hmm. but i thought arnie was surprisingly solid in this considering this was prior to him coming under James Cameron's wing. Um, although, thinking back, maybe I'm filling in the blanks a little bit because I know that he obviously would become a, uh, a better actor than this. Well, thinking, um, yeah, think about it, Hercules in New York was 1980 and that was when his voice was dubbed because people thought it would just be unlistenable. So this yeah, is two I, years after well, that. How, how does he, well, how I does think, he stand I, up? To be fair, Hercules in New York was quite... A, I think it was a bit earlier than that. I think it was close oh, really? to... 70, yeah, so it was quite a bit. Oh, early. wow, okay, sorry. Um, Hercules New York, by the way, it isn't a very good film, just to <laughs> say. But it does have a weirdly poignant ending, um, which I was quite I was quite blindsided by. So it's worth it just for that. Um, yeah, doesn't, anyway. doesn't Hercules slip in the middle of the street and he <laughs> kicks himself in the face? <laughs> I think you think of Rocky, actually. Um, 
Yeah, so anyway, Conan the Barbarian, yes. It's very violent. And the action scenes aren't too bad, actually. It's directed by John Milius, who well, I guess would have been famous at that point for having written Dirty Harry and Apocalypse Now. And he'd go on to make Red Dawn a couple of years later. Um, I, sus- it, I suspect they may have been reaching for the kind of pop operatic appeal of something like Star Wars and perhaps expand the universe into sequels. But the problem is with Conan, unlike Star Wars, there just aren't any relatable characters. I mean, you think about Conan himself as really just... He's just a mythic archetype, really, isn't he? He's just a, a lump. Um, and he's not really someone you empathise with on a personal level as such. Um, there were loads of these sorts of fantasy movies in the early to mid-80s. Dragon Slayer with Peter McNichol. David Carradine um, was in half of them, I think. Beastmaster, pretty sure. Rip Torm was in Beastmaster, I'm pretty sure. Um, Kral, Clash of the Titans, um, etc. And But this is obviously... One of the, well, it's the one with some actual money behind it for a start. And it does have some dramatic weight, I'd say, but it does lack some of the fun that a lot of these 80s fan- 80s fantasies had. So Kroll has not been knocked off its perch quite yet. Um, I don't think, I don't think Arnie could have sustained a career just on this stuff, to be honest. Um, I think he needed something a bit more simple and iconic. And so I suppose... James Cameron coming along and turning into a robot was a pretty good move. So yeah, yeah. I, I, no, but, yeah, it's not bad. Are you going to watch Conan the Destroyer if you can get your hands on it? Probably will. Yeah. I'm guessing that it's not as good. I think it's watered down from what I remember. Um, I've got to say though that um, yeah, I, I honestly thought Hercules knew it was 1980, but I'm looking at that's the seems like, yeah, Conan the Barbarian was his first, because before that, you've got st- Pumping Iron and then Stay yeah. Hungry, the villain, st- stuff I've just never heard of. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it gave us Arnie, really, and um, he should make a new film. He should just make another Conan film where he's just, like, got a bit of a belly on him and he's just sitting on a throne, just clocking back 45% mead. <laughs> Every now and again, saying, has Alan Rickman been born yet? <laughs> um yeah well i'm sure i'm surprised they haven't done that yet wheeled him out for well not that specific not the specific line about alan rickman um but just like wheeled him out for a conan reboot maybe they have maybe i just missed it they did do a conan reboot recently didn't they yeah wasn't it with um oh no it's hercules conan reboot wasn't that the one with jason momoa it may have been yeah yes remember being okay one of those either that or hercules had um, ian mcshane in it so i was happy hercules um, was, yeah that was Ian mcshane wasn't it? yeah i was i coasted by on that alone <laughs> um, uh yeah every time anyone else is on the screen i was going ian ian and then when it came <laughs> on so oh, hi ian mcshane yeah, so i was they flew by flew by um isn't there a bit in hercules where ian mcshane is just accepting the fact that he's going to die and there's all these arrows that's landing in the ground around him and he somehow lives i cannot remember i'm sure he's i'm sure he's just like there's a hail of arrows going towards him and he just like opens his arms and just like as if accepting death is coming to him and they just don't hit him (laughs) yeah i remember that film being better than i thought it would be i give you that yeah Um, I watched, did you talk about 21 Jump Street a few months ago on this very podcast? Yeah, I think so. 21 yeah. or 22, I can't remember. 
I just want to echo. Well, my I'll, I'll cover both of them in about a minute. It's I watched Twenty One Jump Street, um, and the the remake of the film. Sorry, not the TV show. And I did enjoy it. I did laugh a lot, which is good. Mm-hmm. I did pop it into the category of she wouldn't fancy him for Jonah Hill and Brie Larson. But when I watched the sequel, I paid for it. I paid money for it um, and turned it off after half an hour because I watching them back to back is problematic because not only does it do the thing of acknowledging that it's a retread, which is kind of funny for a joke or two, not funny for 25 minutes, but mm. it felt, it, whereas the first felt like a film, the second one feels like just a series of set pieces, a series of yes. um, comedic set pieces, and I found it really tiresome, so I just turned it off. So nice. um, watch 21 Gem Street, and if you watch 22 Gem Street, wait at least a month, because otherwise you'll think, all right. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't. You probably wouldn't have seen the amusing car chase towards the end of Twenty Two Jump Street then. No, I think golf buggies or something, or postcards or something. That was quite amusing, but they're very. They're almost like it's. It's almost like they they're forgettable by design. Those sorts of movies because it's like you remember them being quite. You you find them funny when you're watching them. And then you kind of forget that they exist because they're so frivolous sort of thing. And then so when it comes, pops up on Netflix or whatever, you say, oh, yeah, I vaguely remember finding that funny. So you watch it again. And then, of course, you just forget again because um, because it's so frivolous. And then and then you go back and watch it again some other time because it's, e- <laughs> it's easy. And it's like, yeah. that's that's brilliant. It's a it's a brilliant method of just bringing people back, make it vaguely forgettable, but quite amusing. In all, yeah, I've seen it before, and I could, as, as things were happening, I was like, yeah, I remember this. But I still laugh. I still find it amusing yeah. because they, they've both got really good comedic timing. Right, you saying it. that, the whole, like, watching have I seen it? It just always brings me back to In the Line of Fire all the time. <laughs> good. Um, right. Okay. Um, well, I can talk about a film that I didn't make it all the way through. Nice. As well. So that's a nice segue. It's called Europa Report. Um which is which I use uh, a voucher for on Rakuten, the worst <laughs> streaming app known to man. Um, so, yes, Europa Report. <laughs> to be fair, I got about 70 minutes in. So it was the good chunk of the film. So I can say stuff about it. <laughs> the it, running time is 89 minutes. <laughs> 12 minutes. I was struggling. I was struggling. Um, so the plot. Is it's very simply a bunch of astronauts heading to Europa, which is one of Jupiter's moons, to look for signs of life. And um, what they find is more terrifying than they could imagine. Um, well, if you find bad writing and bad editing terrifying, I'm not sure. But it's a found footage sci-fi. Ugh. And it's Jeez. another example. Sorry? I was just thinking, well, that's a weird one because... I'm thinking like the the one thing you tend to get from sci-fi, kind of like we've talked before about gothic horror, a beautiful set. You you get that sense of, of a sort of alien beauty or gothic beauty. Taking that away and making it a found footage film removes yeah. that. So so you everything else has to really stand up to make. Up I mean, for it. you still get the lush production design in that, but it's always in suboptimal resolution or 
in shaky cam on someone's shoulder. That's the difference. Oh. It's another example of um, found footage where, other than the realisation that it is found footage, um, there are no other indications that it's real life. So it see also as above, so below. So you have this... Um, so you have the, kind of like, although it's found footage, like based on like security cameras and like the the cameras that they have on their suits, their spacesuits and that, you've still got quite melodramatic line readings and you've got this sumptuous orchestral score and you've got the cinematic lighting. But as I said, all suboptimal resolution and awkward framing. So all the bad parts with none of the good. So... It's a pity because the bits the where it does where it is classically cinematic, like when the the landing sequence, for example, are really gorgeously framed and that. And there's a good sequence where one character plunges into the abyss of space, and that's quite effective. Uh, so, but that's about all you get in terms of quality. Um, it's it's weirdly aggressively fast paced which totally ruins any sense of grandeur or any sense of there being a journey. And the editing is shocking uh, on a kind of macro level. So uh, the the way, the pacing of it, the way it skews our sense of time. For example, there's one bit where a character steps out onto the surface of the moon, takes literally about five steps, and suddenly one of the other characters on board is saying, oh, she's been out there an hour. It's like, well... Didn't get any sense of that from the visuals at all, but okay. Even just a se- even like a few seconds of landscape, yeah. and, and then a yeah. cut back. Yeah. A couple of establishing shots of that person within the landscape, but no, of course they can't do that because it's found footage. So you can't have an establishing shot, a wide shot. Idiotic decision. Anyway, so you, and then of course, then on the micro level of editing, you've got the really irritating, scratchy editing during the action scenes where it's just mm-hmm. cutting in and out. A uh, load of visual artifacts and loud noises, scratchy noises in the soundtrack. Um, and then you've got the narrative jumping all over the place, um, jumping back and forth, which is not only confusing, but it also negates, again, that sense of journey into deep space. Um, and, oh, my God, this really irritating um, conceit that it keeps doing, it keeps having these split screen moments where literally there'll be about 12 different images on the screen, like a kind of suite of security cameras or whatever. And so they'll all be in little boxes around the screen and all showing something different. And something dramatic will happen in one of the screens somewhere. But of course, you've got 12 screens to look at, so you don't catch it. You don't see what actually just happened. It's just a loud noise. And then the screens go all fuzzy. Um, The script is just exposition. That sounds like Night Trap on the Sega Saturn. That's crap. (laughs) I would have rather have just watched a Let's Play of Light <laughs> Trap. Um, the script, Available yeah. on Switch, by the way. I know. Exposition heavy is all I can say about this. So we get a lot of scientific speculation, which all rings true and apparently is quite scientifically accurate, so to speak. But you also get a load of two-camera monologues where characters explain how they're feeling and why. Rather than it becoming evident through performance or the dynamics between the characters, they just literally just tell us. Um, so, and it's another sci-fi movie where a lot of the drama occurs purely due to incompetence and a lack of professionalism. So, like, for example, 
one character goes for a, um, a spacewalk for a, a specific purpose, a, a walk on the on the moon itself for a specific purpose to find out something very specific, and then and then they just start wandering around to check things out, as they put it. Um, and and at one point they even decide to. She goes, "Oh, I'm going to turn off my light on my suit just as an experiment." Why would you experiment with some of that? You'd have to agree that stuff beforehand. Ridiculous. It's just a really dull and annoying film. And mm. it's not scary at all. It's just loud noises and scratchy editing. Terrible. Um, it's a shame, really, because Michael Nykvist is in this and Shelter Copley. And I, I do like Shelter Copley. He's kind yes. of like, he's sort of my um, my backup Leland Dorsa. So that is a shame that it... Uh, it, it didn't work out for you. I, as you were talking, then I was just sort of catching up on the cast and stuff, and I can see that uh, the reception on Wikipedia is that Europa Report has received generally positive reviews. But you, you didn't agree with that, Rupert. <laughs> oh, I did notice. That's fine. I mean, it's, it's fine. They've got their own opinion. Well, <laughs> <laughs> They've got their incorrect opinions. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found footage. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I found footage sci-fi that would. The problem with found footage is it's there's very little middle ground. It's either going to be like compressive and clever or it's going to be really grating and irritating. And we've covered this before. And more often than not, they're in the latter category. I just I can't fathom what why there was a decision to make this found footage film. It doesn't make sense, which is why I mentioned As Above So Below, because, again, that was another film where it didn't have to be. And it was actively worse for being found footage. Watching, yeah, especially when it's a horror or like a dark sci-fi, like that sounds. Mm-hmm. When anything vaguely interesting kicks off, watching a camera swinging and like static, yep. static or looking at the floor is just the worst thing that can happen. So yeah. I don't, I don't know why. Why? Yeah, the moment when, like, the pace quickens to an extent where you, you really need to see what's going on because, like, obviously it's all visually represented that's the moment when it completely loses its value entirely because you can't see what's going on so yeah uh, uh, my last film is trial by fire from 2018 which stars quite frankly and unrecognizable to me jack o'connell and laura dern um this is a film based on it's directed by edward zwick i've never heard of him i don't know if it rings a bell with you but um, yeah he's a, he's a pretty solid director he, yeah, he made Glory. He made uh, what's the one with? Was it, called, it wasn't called Deliverance. The one with um, James Bond in it. Um, I can't Craig. remember. Yes, yeah. What's it called? It wasn't called Deliverance. Anyway, um, I think he made might have made Blood Diamond as well. But yeah, he's pretty solid. Well, this is a bit of a weird one from him then, especially because I, I remember seeing and enjoying Blood Diamond. But this is. Um, it's based on a, a true story. Uh, well, a book called Tried by Fire by David Brown, who I think is a, he's an American journalist who wrote about this case. And it's set in the early 90s. And Jack O'Connell plays a guy called Cameron Willingham, who wakes up to find his house on fire. And I think he's got three kids and a wife. And he, we see his house burst into flames. And him running outside, seemingly like pushing his car away from the house. And then on the lawn basically just screaming that his children are all dead and because it's set is set in the, the american south and he is quite a rambunctious character uh a sort of a, a bit of a 
uh, not hillbilly, but you know, like a, a, a lower, definitely, um, <laughs> definitely not an upstanding member of society. Uh, it's just kind of a, a already decided in court that he's clearly guilty. He clearly set the fire for financial reasons, killed his daughters because mm-hmm. he was drunk, and this sort of a ridiculous trial. And then he just gets locked up on death row for murder, and no one takes him seriously, and until Laura Dern takes an interest in his case and uh, gets him again. I do apologize. I've seen this film about six weeks ago, six weeks ago. And sort of whilst Jack O'Connell's character is, is left in the lurch by everyone who just assumes he's just this hillbilly who has just killed his kids because he was drunk and you know left them to die. Uh, Laura Dern takes an interest in the case, even though she lives miles away and sort of really feels sorry for him and becomes, uh, visits him and gets a, gets a relationship going with him uh, it was a weird film because obviously it's, it's based on it's based on an actual event and i watched this with Faye, and she was much more affected by it than i was because i i watched the film and the things that happened in the film made made me think this has obviously just been massively dramatized i felt like it, mm. it was a really really dramatized series of events but then after the film um, I read about it and it was kind of as well, you know, it was from what I read, it was as the film presented, which mm. was, I, I kind of wish I'd done it the other way around. I wish I'd read about the film first, read about the, the events and then watched the film. Cause I would have taken more from it. I do feel that um, whilst it's definitely cinematic, uh, there were, there were certain moments like the way, the way he, he uh, is initially mistreated by the guards and then, and then befriends them. It feels like a lot of stuff is skipped over. Uh, mm. you, you just think like, why are these? Why are these prison guards? Why have they suddenly? Th- th- these prison guards are in their thirties and forties, and with your and they they work on death row, and they mm. s- they they suddenly become much more humanitarian in this one man's presence. And it's mm. not like he's a. It's not like he's a particular illuminating figure. Like I said, he he's quite a. It's quite a rough and ready, uh, you know. He hasn't got a job. He's boozing all the time, and everyone just thinks he's killed his kids. So why would they? why would everyone's personality around him change because mm. he is convinced of his own innocence? Um, yeah, because I would imagine that many, many people on death row would probably be claiming that they're innocent as well. Yeah. Um, there, there's some nice moments in it. And I, I, like I said, when I watched the film, I just thought, I just assumed, oh, this is just really, this is getting quite sentimental and stylized now. It seems quite unrealistic. And I, I, I think after after watching it and reading about it, I kind of wish I just watched like an hour long documentary about the the actual trial and events themselves, um, than a film about it. I, I got vibes of, I don't know if you mentioned it earlier on, all good things where I thought uh, the case seems much more interesting in this film, and um, whilst it's an amazing performance by Jack O'Connell and his accent is is like really spot on, it, it's almost him and Laura Dern are in different films when it mm. when we see Jack O'Connell he's it's very earthy and then when we see Laura Dern it's a little bit it's a little bit dreamy and she's with her family and they're like well, man, why are you getting involved in this and it's almost like they're in two separate films the way they they react to each other and so yeah I I don't know it, it didn't quite work for me it worked for Faye but this is something I'd rather see I think in, in a documentary about the actual case itself right and don't ask me if it was on Netflix or Amazon Prime because I cannot remember. Right. 
Um, so should I watch this film? I'd, I'd like you to. Like I'd like you. Yeah, okay. I'd like you to watch it. Read about it first, and then watch it, because you'll be doing then what I feel like I should have done. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Let me. Um, let me do a couple more. Uh... That's me done, by the way. Okay. Um, well, I'll talk about the Puppet Masters um, on Disney Plus. Uh, really using my Disney Plus subscription here. Not. Puppet Master, The Puppet Masters, which is bizarre Disney-produced twist on the Body Snatchers theme. So a group of agents uh, visit this town, um, this suspicious town, and uh, discover that it's been overrun by these manta ray-type aliens, small manta ray-type aliens, that basically attach themselves to people's spines under their clothes, naturally. Um, and then control their brains by stabbing them in the back of the neck. And oh. and then they go around and they act kind of like people, but creepy people. And they go and infect other people like a virus. That's the idea. It's got a pretty decent supporting cast. Uh, it's Donald Sutherland's in it. Yaffa Koto, Will Patton. Um, most God of bless them. Yaffa Koto. Yes. When was this made? I assume this was new. Oh, no, no, no. This was, I want to say, mid-90s. Right, okay. Um, it is definitely 90s, actually. More on that later. But, yeah, so the supporting cast, most of those people I mentioned, they're pretty wasted. Um, although it is quite fun to see Donald Sutherland playing a good guy after the fact that, of course, he was an in invasion of the Body Snatchers, which had a shock ending. Um, so that was quite cool. The main guy... Someone called Eric Tull, I'm not familiar with. He is the most 90s looking man I've ever seen. He's got like glossy straight hair, swept back in a center part, and it's astonishing. What's his name? He sounds like Andy Garcia at Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. His name's Eric Eric Tull. He's just, he, he, T H A L. He's, he's just nobody really. Um, (laughs) <laughs> There's a few amusing moments in this film. The way that the agents discover that the civilians in this town are not humans, right, is by one of the agents, the the female agent, she unbuttons her blouse and she notices that the boys don't look down her top. So that's her evidence that they've been taken over by aliens. Amazing. Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. Now, You'd expect that in a comedy horror, but this actually does take itself quite seriously. It is it is a strange mix of this innocent goofiness and gore, because it's quite gory as well. And some of the action is quite well orchestrated, because it's quite action-heavy. I mean, it's well orchestrated. It's not, you know, it's hardly The Raid or something, but it's quite well-staged, kinetic, and it's a lot of in-frame action, and there's a lot of it. Um Apparently, there was a lot of studio interference with this, and you can really see it because in the second half of the film, the narrative just it lurches horribly around the place. They're suddenly in a completely different location. You've no idea why. Um, but there's some amusing stuff in there, like when when the aliens capture people, right, and cocoon them, they strip off all their clothes but leave their pants on, which I thought was quite quaint. Um, that was a nice little touch. The main guy has a fight with Keith David at the end. Good. 
And like the main guy, bear in mind that this main guy looks so 90s in his clothes and his hair and everything. And he throws Keith David into a pile of CRT monitors. It's amazing. <laughs> it's just the 90s in a single shot. Um, <laughs> it is not a good film, but it is yeah. fast paced and it's poorly acted, badly written and it looks really cheap. Like the the alien nest is just a load of like sheets hung from the ceiling. It's a load, a load of sheets hung from the ceiling, backlit, and just a load of people standing still underneath them. It's like mm, it's not the most convincing alien show. We're not exactly giving H.R. Geiger a run for his money, are we? Um, it's it's deservedly forgotten um, and bafflingly misguided and unbalanced, and so it really needs to be watched. By everyone. <laughs> oh, right. Rightfully Pit forgotten, monsters. bafflingly misguided, everyone should watch it. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, the names are my uh, three goats, actually. <laughs> um, okay, and I'll talk about quickly The Hand That Rocks a Cradle, also on Disney Plus, um, which I haven't seen in at least two decades. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's uh, directed by Curtis Hansen. Um, we also made LA Confidential after this and Eight Mile. Dead now, sadly. Um, but yeah, very solidly made. Um, it's written by Amanda Silver, and she went on to write the first couple of Apes movies and Jurassic World. Um, so Annabelle Sciorra, Sciorra, Sciorra. Anyway, Annabella Sciorra. She is a mum who is. Uh, oh, she's a pregnant lady. In fact, she's sexually assaulted by her gynecologist. So she reports him and in the ensuing kind of um, scandal, he kills himself. So anyway, she gives birth to her baby, but she is uh, busy. So she needs to hire a nanny. And the wife of the doctor who killed himself takes up the role and that woman is Rebecca de Mornay. Um, Ernie Hudson's in this as well. Good. He's a gardener. He's, he's a bit of a tropey character. He's the magical simpleton. Um, but yeah, Rebecca de Mornay, her performance is really good. It's very unsettling. She has this amazing unblinking gaze and it's really quite malevolent. It's, it's a pretty good film. It's a smart drama for adults and it specifically is preying on female fears. Um, it's, it's sort of like one of those scary movies where it's the scariness is about human misbehavior and cruel intentions really, and taking advantage of a position of power. And, um, and it's not just when I talk about female fears, it's not just in terms of this attractive woman stepping into uh, the mother's life at a time when she's feeling vulnerable and unattractive, but also the way that Rebecca de Mornay's character makes her feel useless and incompetent in a really, really calculating way. And I, I think the fun in the film is is the way that Rebecca de Mornay is constantly two steps ahead of the family and one step ahead of us. And her schemes are quite mm. amusingly convoluted, um, like where she arranges a surprise party for the mother and beforehand plants a seed of her husband's possible infidelity, knowing that someone will, knowing that everything will suddenly kick off at the party itself is quite ridiculous, but amusing. I'd say the husband, the husband has this 
ridiculous puppy dog lust for Rebecca de Mornay, uh, which is very silly. But again, it, I guess it's just another way of tapping into the kinds of fears that um, postnatal women might have. Um, uh, and But yeah, towards the end, clearly the last 30 minutes is where it all falls apart, really. The way that the mum figures out uh, Rebecca de Mornay's secret is clearly ridiculous so um and it does just go down a real schlocky route at the end um this is completely one of those thrillers by the way that would be ruined by mobile phones but also wouldn't really work if they didn't have a massive house and of course the need for a full-time staff on site actually it's um (laughs) yeah as far as like these sort of home invasions things go it's it's not as scary as something like Cape Fear and it's not as intelligent as something like Fatal Attraction, but as a B grade home invasion thriller, it's pretty good. Right. So you're telling this film wouldn't work if it was set in 2018 sponsored by iPhone in a studio apartment. No, basically that they, if they're going to remake it, just don't go there. Okay. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's it. That's it pretty much. So, I'm just scrolling through and thinking of my film of the week. I haven't really watched many good ones, I say. <laughs> well, mine is clearly The Sisters Brothers. Uh, I really like that film. But yeah, um, yeah uh, I... mm, well, if I was going to, the best film I watched was probably Escape from Alcatraz. But I'd imagine a lot of people have seen that already. But um, that, what was it? Ninety seventy nine? Was it? You say seventy nine, and it holds up pretty well. Uh, I might watch that. I might start. Oh. I need well, obviously, because you know I'm part. I'm a Kino King. I need to actually watch films to have for the podcast. So uh, I will. I will. So I might watch that. Is that on Netflix or Amazon Prime? What was that on? Uh, that was on Prime. Um, nice. Yeah, and then the Hand the Rock's Cradle is worth a watch as well. Uh, possibly, given that you just had a baby, well, uh, it may tap into some fears. But I don't know. It's it's so silly and obviously the people in it is depicting uh no it could be good actually because we we yeah. obviously we we specifically avoided these films stuff like bloody inside that french extreme horror and we didn't watch that over the last 10 months but um <laughs> yeah. we we did yeah it would be nice now It'd be interesting to see phase response to something like the hand the rocks the cradle actually so if she's up yeah. for it and is that netflix or prime that was on disney plus <laughs> that, that didn't that rhyme is, Rupert. That, that, no. that, that sort of um, the vocal crescendo you had then it didn't end well no. <laughs> so what an important part of songwriting <laughs> um, yeah don't 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 bore us finish your set no, don't bore us get the chorus what um what have you got lined up have you got any possible series on the horizon or have you got but it's nice it's nice to be back for a start after a month off but yeah i just wondered if you had any any other any other films you've got on on the cards are you feeling a certain genre no i might i want to finish off this court drama with don johnson and rebecca de mornay um um, but other, like I've, you might fancy Rebecca de Mornay, Rupert. <laughs> I do very and much. And Don Johnson, maybe. Both of them. I would take either or or both. Um, yes, I've got a couple of what's a couple of documentaries actually, which I may mention. Don't normally do documentaries, but it's because it's so hard to find a quality documentary. But have weirdly 
watched a series of very good documentaries, so I might just whiz through them next time. That could be cool, yeah. Right, I'll get back to Teen Titans Go. Got another two seasons left. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Love to the family. Love to the viewers. And them too. And the listeners, because we don't have viewers.